Welcome to 20-Minute Health Talk. I'm your host, Rob Hoyle. Common COVID-19 symptoms include fever, chills, cough, and shortness of breath. But research has revealed that many older adults experience some atypical signs of the virus. This is according to a study published in the Journal of Gerontology. And today we speak with the principal investigator of that paper, Dr. Allison Marzigliano. To start, what are some of these atypical symptoms? Sure. Yes. Happy to talk about that study. Um, When we hear from the beginning what's typical for COVID-19, people presented with fever, cough, and shortness of breath. And that's what everyone would expect to see. You know, if you had one of those, the first thought would be to get a COVID test. If you have an older adult or anybody really who presents with, you know, um, just uh, confusion or lethargy or agitation, you would not think necessarily to, to do a COVID-19 test. Um, and so this is an atypical symptom that, like I said, is really presenting in a substantial number of older older adults, not in the presence of those typical symptoms. Um, you know, atypical just means that it's not typical for that, for that illness. And so these atypical symptoms are present in high numbers, but not what we um, originally think of when we hear COVID-19. This study coming out of the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research examined the electronic medical records for nearly 5,000 older adults over the age of 65 who were hospitalized with a positive COVID-19 test between March 1st and April 20th of 2020. And of those with atypical presentation, nearly half had atypical symptoms alone. Was that surprising? Right. So of the people who presented atypically um, of that group, nearly half presented with typical as well. So they had both and and about half presented with only the atypical in the absence of typical symptoms. So you had a large portion of people presenting just with functional decline, altered mental status um, without any fever, cough and shortness of breath. Um, I think it was surprising that this the percentage was so large. I think from our clinical um, encounters that that some of the the authors had, um, we uh, investigated this question because we expected that type of finding. But that it was such a large group was um, just made it all the more reason that we felt that this was important work to publish and, and disseminate. Right. And each patient's clinical course and outcomes were followed until June 10th, 2020. Tell us more about your findings and the key takeaways. Sure. From that, um, from the medical records, we extracted data on demographics, clinical course, outcomes, presentation, um, and as well as how patients presented to the hospital. So what they said when they came in, why they were coming into the emergency room. Um, And so we categorized the presentation into typical presentation, what you expect when you hear COVID-19, what what you're expecting to see. So that's cough, fever, shortness of breath. Um, And we compared those to people who had an atypical symptom presentation, and that was in the presence or absence of those typical symptoms. So the atypical symptom presentation was things like functional decline, um, altered mental status, confusion, lethargy, um, not not feeling great, general malaise. Um, And so what we found was that though typical presentation was the most common, so 50%, um, you know, had the typical presentation, we also found that substantial numbers of older adults reported an atypical presentation. So 25% reported functional decline, 11% reported altered mental status. And so these are substantial groups of people, many of which presented in the absence of those typical symptoms. So they didn't have fever, cough, or shortness of breath. 
When we prepare and when we compared those two groups, we found that atypical presentation was associated with things like older age, female gender, higher number of comorbidities, um, as well as presence of dementia or diabetes. Um, and then we compared outcomes as well. And so we really found that when you compare the outcomes with the exception of receipt of ICU level care, the outcomes were really very comparable, very similar between the, those who presented typically and those who presented atypically. So they had the, the range, same level um, le length of stay, same number were readmitted into the hospital and mortality was comparable across the two groups. When you talk about um, functional decline, what does mm -hmm. that mean? So functional decline is, um, you know, people who presented saying things like they were weak or lethargic or drowsy or they just generally didn't feel right. Um, they weren't eating. Maybe they they um, had general malaise. Um, and so we took all those those words. And so this is what people said when they came into the emergency room. Um, and we were able to work with colleagues at Harvard University and used a natural language processing tool that was able to search this text. Um, and we told it how to search the text and pull out and categorize all these words um, like that and, you know, different variations of those words and categorize them all under functional decline. Um, and, and the same with altered mental status. And so through using this tool, we were able to take that qualitative data, um, you know, words that maybe were spelled incorrectly or different variations, or instead of it said shortness of breath, it said, um, you know, an acronym for shortness of breath. And so we were able to categorize all of that together to really fine tune, um, you know, our analyses. Yeah. So should doctors and caregivers consider testing for COVID-19 more frequently in elderly patients? Right. So I think this um, these findings have uh, important implications for testing. Um, you know, I think that uh, clinicians should be aware when they see their patients um, that their patients, especially their older adult patients, may not be presenting with those typical symptoms. I think it's important for caregivers to be aware. You know, if you're you're living with a parent or you're taking care of an older adult, um, that the, the person you're caring for may not be um, presenting with those typical symptoms. And so um, it's important to keep in mind, um, especially when and if num as numbers decline um, and COVID-19 testing isn't at the first go-to as, as it may be um, or as it has been recently, that this is something to keep in mind. You know, um, people can go down. It's important to do this testing um, early and promptly for two reasons. First, so that it doesn't spread to others. Um, you know, the quicker you know that the person has COVID-19, um, the, the quicker you can isolate them. Um, and so it's not spreading. And so if you go down this, this rabbit hole of um, not testing because you're not expecting this to be COVID because it's not what you would, it's not fever, cough, or shortness of breath, the person can be out and about for weeks spreading, um, spreading COVID without knowing. That's the first um the first reason. And then the second reason why it's important to do this early testing is because you do present to a doctor's office, an older adult with, um, you know, stomach discomfort or just not feeling great. And this could prompt a series of very invasive testing, MRIs, CAT scans to find out what the root cause of the illness is. Um, and so, you know, it very well may be that a, a COVID-19 test is all that was needed. Um, and that's, you know, not not nearly as invasive and quick and easy um, to do. Uh, how did how did these individuals fare in in their uh, care and their outcomes? Right. So that is one question that we asked. Um, we compared a few different outcomes, um, short term outcomes across the typical and atypical groups. Um, so we compared hospital length of stay, hospital readmission. We compared ICU level care and mortality. 
Um, and we found that the typical groups more often required ICU level care. So things, um, you know, these people had shortness of breath many times. Um, they required, if they required ICU level care, it would likely be because of ventilation. Um, so that was an expected finding. Um, but what we thought was even more important than that is that really in terms of hospital readmission, length of stay and mortality, the two groups were comparable in their rates. Um, so the people who presented atypically, um, you know, were, were uh, experienced the same mortality rate, were in the hospital just as long and were readmitted into the hospital within 30 days of discharge, just as much as the people with typical presentation. And that's a really important finding to highlight because um, you don't want to dismiss these atypical symptoms. I think that it's easy to dismiss if an older adult says, you know, I'm just not feeling great today. Um, and that goes on for a day or two, or um, I'm just feeling a little confused or I'm agitated or I'm, I'm tripping a little bit more and falling. I think that many people um, would easily dismiss that. And so in, in this new um, context of COVID-19, um, you know, these people are having just as poor outcomes as the people who are presenting what with what we would expect, fever, cough, and shortness of breath. And so it's an important um, message to not not dismiss these atypical symptoms. Do we know why these symptoms were atypical in these groups? Yeah, I think, um, you know, some of the explanation that we can give for, you know, why atypical presentation was more common in older adults or, or in uh, women, I think some of the explanations can really be borrowed from the, the literature, the existing literature on other diseases. Um, as I mentioned, we know that older adults are less likely to have a fever. They're less likely to have their body respond in such a way that mounts a febrile response. And so um, we know that from other illnesses. And so that was an expected finding. It's just your body, as you get older, doesn't react that way. You're less likely to have that fever. Um, we know from other illnesses, such as a heart attack, that women um, or other disease paradigms, that women um, are more likely to have atypical symptoms. So they don't always have the chest pain that you would expect um, with a heart attack. Um, we we hypothesize that the reason that people who are have higher more, more um, multimorbidities, who have more comorbidities, are more ill, um, or who have diabetes, those were the people who um, you know any as you remember these are hospitalized individuals. So any change from their baseline functioning would prompt them to seek emergency care. Um, so even if you know the, these are individuals who are kind of more at risk, they um, have these non-specific symptoms such as general malaise, they would seek um, emergency care. And so I think that that's a possible explanation for why we saw that in this hospitalized population, atypical presentation was more likely to be related to presence of diabetes um, or more comorbidities. Um, with our dementia finding, I think that um, the individuals are maybe not as um, not as able to articulate what's wrong with them um, or what they're feeling. And so um, it may be more likely than that's why the, the atypical pre presentation was related to the dementia finding. What is the older adult COVID work group and how did you get involved with that? So I think some of the ways that we do our best research is when we collaborate with others because, you know, we all have our strong, strong points. Like we all have stuff that we are great at and we were trained in and we received our background in. And so as a researcher, I can bring to the table an understanding of, you know, theories and frameworks that go into psychosocial response to illness and older adulthood. Um, I 
have a quantitative and qualitative research training. So I know how to design those types of research studies and keep them well controlled. Um, but I don't have the clinical training um, to be able to know exactly what's going on in the hospital setting, in the clinic, and know what needs to be investigated. Um, and so what we did at the beginning of COVID was kind of join together with geriatricians and hospitalists um, and different healthcare providers, um, some in the hospital, medical directors, um, directors of clinics, directors of nursing homes, assisted living facilities. Um, and we formed this older adult work group where we all came together for a half hour or so once a week. Um, and the clinicians really brought us up to speed on what was going on, what was going on with their older adult patients and what was going on with COVID. And these were, um, you know, kind of one-offs, what they saw at the patients right in front of them. And so what they wanted to know was, was what they were seeing anecdotally with these one one or two patients right in front of them, if if this was going on on a larger scale. And so we took those questions that they asked um, and we kind of, you know, went into the medical records or developed questionnaires to ask patients to be able to answer these questions very confidently, not based on one or two people they saw right there in front of them, but based on thousands of people that we had access to throughout the health system. So what is next uh, in the research area? Yeah. So I, I think that, yes, this, um, you know, just like there's researchers in, um, diff there's older adult researchers, there's loneliness researchers, which, which I am. I think that, um, you know, some people have really shifted their research focus and are now COVID-19 researchers, um, not only in the, not only in the, um, the physical aspect, but also the mental health. Like how are people affected by social isolation um, and, you know, loneliness and the social implications of having these um, quarantine and, and all of that. And so I think that, um, you know, the comparing typical and atypical presentations, just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many other studies that can be looked at in the COVID-19 world. Um, one study that I'm working on now is um, interviews that we conducted during the first surge of the pandemic as well. They were telephone interviews um, where we asked older adults, you know, how they were doing uh, based on being affected by the pandemic-related restrictions. So having to stay at home, where were they getting their news from? Um, what kind of mental health, um, you know, repercussions were they experiencing? Um, and that was both a, a mixed-method study. So this was quantitative and qualitative um, data. And as well as not only asking the older adults, but also asking their caregivers, um, you know, caregivers usually were working caregivers. Some reported a more positive um, response because now they were working from home, so they had more time to devote to their loved one. Other ones, um, you know, weren't able to see their loved one because they were staying away from them. So they had, you know, more of a negative impact on them. So I think it does, um, you know, in, in that way, it does open up a, a wealth, a, a whole new area um, within infectious disease that that really people can can d devote their time and efforts to. And I think that that's something that, um, that we're all, uh, interested in doing. Yeah. That's a fascinating point that you raised because like, you know, we all try to do the right thing during the pandemic and like, let's not visit grandma. Let's yeah. not visit grandpa because right. we don't want to get them sick. But that isolation itself yes. could lead to other things. Like you said, depression. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, in many cases, the, um, the person, the caregiver who takes care of the older adult is their advocate. 
And so if they're not there advocating for the older adult, um, you know, they may be protecting them from COVID-19, but there's other other ramifications of that as well. You know, maybe that person's not eating as well as they used to or doesn't have the someone to talk to. Um, yeah, I think what's also interesting, too, is that, you know, so many old older adults, you know, uh, had tougher, you know, outcomes from getting COVID. Uh, I think eight out of every 10 COVID death in the United States occurred in somebody 65 years and older, but a lot of the older people were not involved in some of these clinical trials. Mm. Is there a push maybe to get more people now involved in, in clinical trials? I think so. I think that, um, you know, it's important when you conduct studies, um, you know, I, I, as a researcher, completely understand when you're conducting studies, you have to have very strict inclusion and exclusion criteria um, in order to, um, you know, be confident in your results. Um, you know, and so the, the the con of that is, though, when the study comes out and you have your study findings, you can really only speak to those. Um, you can you can't generalize to other populations. You can really only say your study findings are relevant for the group that was in the study. And so if you're omitting older adults from the study, um, there's going to be a lag and a delay in being able to then apply what you found. Um, you'll have to do another study with older adults. And so, um, you know, there's that delay in being able to bring them, bring them the treatment or the intervention or the, the comfort, um, whatever it is that you're studying. And so, um, to the best of your ability, I think it's great to include, um, you know, groups, groups in the initial research study or have, uh, simultaneous, um, research studies going on with different groups. So there is not that delay in bringing that intervention to other groups of individuals. What kind of problems did these atypical symptoms cause early on when people were still figuring this out? Right. This is information we didn't have um, in the in the beginning. And so I think that, um, you know, people would say, oh, at least it's not a cough or I don't have a fever. I'm good to go. Um, and, you know, while while that very well may be true, um, and, and we can't say everything's a symptom of COVID. Uh, we know based on this study that a large percentage of older adults specifically did experience these symptoms and these, these symptoms alone. And still, that's the case moving forward, right? Right. Yes. I mean, we expect that that um, we would think that 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 would still be the case. I, I'm not sure of how the vaccine would change these findings. And, and that's something that we'd like to look at in the future. Um but I think, you know, if for quite some time, testing was, uh, you know, was very, very, it was done everywhere um, and was the first, you know, you would walk into the emergency room and you would get a test. And, um, you know, as that may decline in the future, it's even more important to be aware of these findings because then you have to know who to test or when to send somebody from a test if you're a clinician or if you're a caregiver, when to bring your loved one for a test. We always like to end on a positive note here on 20 Minute Health Talk. So I want to ask you, what gives you hope? What gives you optimism uh, for the future? Yes. Um, so I, uh, I've, this has been going on for, you know, 18 plus months. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, our, our response here at Northwell, um, to the pandemic, um, you know, from what I've seen from a research perspective has been absolutely amazing. Um, our work group has published several papers on COVID-19 work, um, and they've been picked up, um, and kind of spread all around, uh, across the globe and people are 
um, using the findings in their clinics. Uh, clinically, I know from my colleagues, the response was was amazing. Um, in you know, they rallied to the call. They put everything else on hold. They were at the hospital constantly. Um, and so, I think that if anything, it gives you confidence um, in in what can what we can handle moving forward. That's awesome. Dr. Marziano, thank you so much for joining us here on 20 Minute Health Talk. And for you, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Rob Hoyle. Have a great day. Get more expert insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. Subscribe to 20 Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.